0: Welcome back to Talk Evidence, the BMJ podcast where we talk about evidence. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and this week I'm coming to you from Glasgow where we have our international forum. But as usual, back in the studio, we have your two favourite EBM nerds, Carl and Helen. Helen, can you introduce yourself?
1: Hi, I'm Helen MacDonald, UK Research Editor for the BMJ.
0: Definitely Research Editor this month.
1: Yes, yes, I've changed.
0: And, uh, Carl, can you introduce yourself? Yes, hi, I'm Carl Hennigan. I
2: am editor in chief of BMJ Evidence Based Medicine.
0: Great. So, we've got quite a lineup for everyone this week. We're going to be talking about health checks, which is a, a new rant stop that Carl's got. We've got antibiotics. Uh, we'll be discussing troponin. And finally, th- it's all going to be about statistical significance. Um, but Carl, I don't know whether this is a good opener or not, but uh, I, over to you for your run yeah, stop I... about uh, health checks.
2: Well, that's a new idea, isn't it? A rant, stop. Look, um, General Health Checks is a publication out in the Cochrane Library, which is an update of a systematic review on the effect of general health checks in adults for reducing morbidity and mortality. Now, this was first published in 2012, and there's not been an update until now. So seven years later, we've got an update that shows 17 trials, of which 15 of them reported outcome data on the use of general health checks. Is that
1: 17 L- new ones?
2: No, not 17 new trials. Yeah. Many of these trials are incredibly old, yeah. uh, going back some dates in time, uh, back to the 60s, I think, some of these trials mm. even. But um, I'll come back to this because we actually ran one of these trials in our department that's included in there. But the first is, let's look at what the evidence show. The risk of bias was generally generally low for our primary outcome. Health checks have little or no effect on total mortality risk ratio one they have no effect on cancer mortality and have probably have little or no effect on cardiovascular mortality so basically there's new outcomes have come out in this the evidence is of moderate to good quality and it shows you there's no evidence that health checks work
1: and is that going to convince a cynic Are are these like long enough health checks
2: Well, look, we ran one of these health checks, actually, in our department. We ran something called the Ox Check Study in the 1980s and followed it up in 1995 in a publication in the BMJ that I'm sure you're delighted to go and read. 2,205 men and women were randomised. What most of these trials show is a small reduction in cholesterol, small reductions in blood pressure, no reduction in smoking habits or BMI, And that was used then in economic models to somehow translate it in a 2008 economic model in the UK that said health checks could prevent 1,600 heart attacks and strokes, 650 premature deaths and 4,000 cases of diabetes early. And that's when we started this movement to we're having health checks all the time and so if you come in the uk we have significant numbers of people having health checks on an annual basis about a million and a half people have health checks a lot of people a lot of effort a lot going on and actually i'm just gonna i'm gonna keep going here because i've got a bit more to say on this (laughs) in that sorry about this this is where it gets interesting and ranty for me there's been a review of the first eight years of the Health Check programme. He basically says there's variation in uptake and screening. There's small increases in detection of disease, a small increase in use of statins to 3 or 4%. And they say they're preventing 300 premature deaths. Well, remember, it well, was 650, now it's 300. But here's my right, rant. Yeah. That's yes, yeah, yeah. But here's my rant. Danny Dawling wrote a piece in the BMJ opinion on March the 19th just recently. Go and read it. It's very interesting. Austerity bites. Life expectancy has fallen by over a year since 2015. Public Health England say this is a new trend rather than a blip. So let me ask everybody, let me ask you, Helen, on or out there, what's going on? We're doing all of this work for health checks. We're putting all this effort in. And over here, life expectancy is decreased by a year. And the evidence is telling you they do not make a difference, but they cost a significant amount of money. I've stunned Helen MacDonald into silence there. No answer.
1: I think I've been asked a rhetorical question. (laughs) (laughs) A question you can't answer.
2: Just read the review. Well, it's,
1: it's not very supportive, is it? I mean, if the best evidence suggests that it doesn't work and... You're saying that evidence is a pretty good quality and the studies were a reasonable size and they had a good duration. We're pretty confident it doesn't work. And then we've got data from the programme itself, the sort of real world data to complement the trial data, which is also not really giving us any strong signals that it's working. And then we've got a third lot of information on life expectancy, which has fallen by a year. It's not a rosy picture for health checks. A
2: rosy, (laughs) it's an outrageous picture. A year (laughs) loss loss in life expenses. They put it down to four things. They say coronary heart disease, flu, dementia and drug misuse are all the things where it's going wrong. And these are all the areas where we're trying to do these opportunistic screening things. Mm. We're not clearly thinking about what we're doing and what the evidence is telling us and the opportunity cost. Because there's something going What's wrong. What's the
1: cost of the screening programmes then? Do you know that?
2: Well, I know it's in the hundreds of millions for healthy screening. Just to say it's between age 40 and 74, I get my invite. Mm. It's a huge amount of work for primary care. It's The bill's footed by local authorities. The same time social services and provisions are being cut in the elderly to fund health checks. And that's the idea of the opportunity cost.
1: Mm. Are you
2: going to listen to the evidence for informing your policy or not? The problem is once you've rolled these things out, become very difficult to roll them back it's almost like you have to show harm but remember we started out with a model that says 650 premature deaths actually it's now half and actually the true picture is austerity bites is suggesting it's going the wrong way so to me this is a failure for evidence to impact on policy that's a huge interesting issue for which i don't know why it quite happens but all i can keep saying is like now it's pointing out If we looked at this review, you might come to a different perspective about what to do in terms of health checks. Mm. And you might use that money in a different way.
0: Do you guys know if, um, so in the UK we have a thing called QOF which uh, uh, incentivizes certain activities in uh, GP practices. Is there a QOF thing around uh, health checks? Why is it that this is so, kind of enduring
2: well this started actually going back to 1990 gps in 1990 were offered financial incentives to do health checks, and that's what incentivized our department to do the ox check study said well if you're doing it what happens then we've seen the quality outcome framework the COF, as you refer to pay people to monitor activity record disease status and monitor certain treatments and then what's happened here is NHS checks sit outside Quof, and they're mandated by local authorities. I think they took them over the responsibility in 2013, and they are to get to all the population between 40 to 74, invite them in for a health check to do certain things like cardiovascular disease and stroke reduction. And it sounds like a sensible thing to do, and it sounds like a good use of money. But wouldn't you be expecting, if it were, that life expectancy would be increasing, not falling? And if it's falling, you have to ask serious questions. The real-world data is going in the opposite direction. What is going on? Are the interventions we're using making any difference? Well, the evidence suggests they're not,
1: and that's my rant. I think you need to stop his rant. I'm getting angry
0: now. (laughs) I'm thinking about (laughs) it. We ended up as policy nerds there.
1: Um, Shall I tell you about something else?
0: I was going to say, I mean i to take my about, beta blockers now and calm down. <laughs> this is all about the complexity of trying to get stuff changed. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, Helen, you're you wanted to talk about antibiotics and, and actually sort of practically what's going on, uh, in well, primary care as well.
1: Carl, I think, touched a couple of weeks ago on the duration of antibiotic prescribing for children with a certain type of pneumonia, and this is a study which was published in the BMJ a few weeks ago. It's a cross-sectional analysis that looks at prescriptions for for common infections in primary care. And the authors say that about 80% of prescribing of antibiotics happens in primary care. So this is a major outlet for our um, prescriptions. The study looks at 2013 to 2015. They look at about getting on for a million consultations that resulted in antibiotic prescription. And the headline finding is really that for most common infections treated in primary care, a substantial number of prescriptions have durations that exceed the recommended guideline for that infection. So these are infections like otitis media, so middle ear infection, uh, sinusitis, acute sore throat, cough and bronchitis, these types of things. And I thought this would be an interesting thing to talk about. And there was, there was an editorial link to this piece by Alistair Hay. And it looks as if he's involved in quite an interesting project linked to NICE in the UK, trying to come up with antibiotic guidance for uh, these very common infections, particularly uh, in primary care. Duncan, can you call Alistair Hay?
0: Yep, we'll get him on the phone. So,
3: hi, I'm Alistair Hay. I'm a practicing GP, uh, so I'm at the Coalface and I'm uh, with the rest of the prescribing community making these prescribing decisions. Um, my main role is as a senior academic at the University of Bristol, where I lead a group that is undertaking research to try and provide evidence that's useful for clinicians when they are making these prescribing decisions because they are difficult.
0: So, yeah, in your editorial, you said, and it's an enormous amount, that um, if GPs were able to adhere to prescription guidelines for antibiotics, then um, 65 million fewer antibiotic days um, could be prescribed in the UK each year. It's an enormous amount. And I just wondered, where do you think that gap comes in between, you know, what's in the guidelines and, and what people do on a, on a day-to-day basis when they're, they're filling in their pad?
3: Well, I suppose the first thing I would just observe is that um, what this paper did was to compare prescribing practice between, I think it was the years 2013 to 2015, with what um, current guidance would suggest Should be done. So we can't really criticize clinicians for not adhering to guidelines that weren't available at the time they were making those (laughs) prescribed. So, um, but nonetheless, it's useful because it does give us a sense of what can be gained if we move from that 2014 ish position to. Um, a position where we are adhering to guidance that is current now. And, and as you say, it's a substantial reduction. It would it would actually dwarf what the UK government has recommended primary care should be doing between now and 2020. So we could, almost
0: at the stroke of a
3: pen, we could achieve that target if we all move to current guidance straight away.
0: Well, that's great. That would be great, obviously. Um... And so in that interim period, what happened to the guidance? Was new evidence um, created or was it just uh, existing evidence was was just synthesised into them?
3: I think it was a mix, actually. Um,
0: so I think some
3: of the guidance was already there at the time that was suggesting that clinicians should have been prescribing shorter courses, so that's probably part of it. Um, but then um, there's been a push Partly in response to the whole policy drive around antimicrobial resistance, um, there's been a push um, uh, by NICE and Public Health England and the BNF to review the evidence once more to see what current guidance should be. So it's a mixture of everything. It's a mixture of some of the guidance was already there, some of the guidance is changing, uh, and that is as a result of more often than not, it'll be new syntheses rather than new research. But there will be some new studies that are that are coming through that are giving guideline committees a bit more confidence that they can recommend shorter courses.
0: Mm. And um, as we're here talking about evidence, what kind of evidence is available? Is it pretty high quality? Are we fairly confident about um, you know the the evidence that's in those guidelines?
3: On the whole, I would say we are. Um, When you subject these studies to the various standard quality assessment tools I have to say there are very few studies that are sort of regarded as being high or even medium quality. Many of them come out as being low or poor quality Um, but I think that reflects the tool and not necessarily the in my view at least, the quality of some of the research. So just just as an example, if a study is not blinded, then that is automatically a sort of black mark against the study. And yet there are plenty of fantastic examples where the research is actually stronger because it's unblinded. Um, so I think sometimes we've got to be a little bit circumspect about the standard grading tools. Uh, i think many of the studies are more than adequate to inform our decision making
0: great and um as you said there is uh an ongoing project to kind of update all the guidance on this um how far through that project are we and and you know what else needs to be done
3: um well very roughly i would say we're around halfway um i don't and have the precise details. They are available on the NICE website, and those who are interested, I'd really encourage you to have a look at the NICE Managing Common Infections guidelines. Um, and the thing that is actually really nice about the current set of guidelines is that NICE is producing a two-page summary, a visual summary, for each of its guidance. So um, I'll just. While we're talking, click to the sore throat guidance, for example. Um, you'll find this in a very, in a matter of clicks, if you Google sore throat nice. And on page one, it just assesses, it just summarizes which patients should be considered for an immediate antibiotic, which groups of patients should not be offered an antibiotic at all, and in which groups of patients you would perhaps consider delayed or a backup prescription and then on the second page it gives you very clear guidance a little bit like the BNF has always done around which antibiotic which dose and for which duration
0: So you guys are GPs. What do you think it is that, you know, when you're writing a prescription for antibiotics, do you look at the guidelines? Why is it do you think that people would go beyond that, you know, prescribe for longer than they recommend?
1: Well, I think it's sort of habit, isn't it, in one sense? If you have it in your head that it's one duration and you've always prescribed it that way, things might change without you realising. And then another theme that Alistair brought up, which I thought was interesting in the editorial is is the idea or the concern that it's important to really not cut short courses of antibiotics, that that might lead to problems with resistance. But Carl, you thought maybe there's a, there's a problem with that.
2: Well, I think it's interesting. It made me think There, you said, how much evidence does it take to break a habit? You know, like there's that sort of 90 days to get a new regime of fitness. You know, actually a single piece of evidence, largely... I think makes no difference to practitioners. And you're talking about many people who've been practicing in a certain way for 10 or 20 years to suddenly change. Now, the first thing is to say is I have a little pocketbook that we have in Oxford that is incredibly useful, which is the sort of local guidance for antibiotic
1: use. It is the most helpful guidance I've ever come across for antibiotics. And
2: in fact, it's it's so helpful in paper that actually it's better in paper than it would be on the sort of iPhone app. And it's really helpful, and it seems to me a couple of basic principles is use of narrow versus broad spectrum antibiotics, and then the use of short versus long. So I think most people get the idea of narrow, you're using a very targeted antibiotic, versus this concept that actually we're all using longer courses than we should be. Well, the evidence for that is much newer than the stuff about the the narrow versus broad spectrum. The other bit that's important is the local contextualization. What do the sensitivities and specificities look like in your area? So, sorry, not the specificity. I'm jumping into diagnostics already again. (laughs) Sensitivities of the drugs. Now, there's an interesting paradox going on in healthcare here. There are two competing interests. One interest is when I go into the workplace, there are posters on the wall about sepsis. The sepsis six, you've got one hour to the treatment window, people are going to die. And the thing is, if you've got sepsis, it is a serious infection that is life threatening. Versus on the other side is, please, we're not here to give you antibiotics. If you've got the cold, flu or a virus, please don't come. The doctor's not going to give you anything. And so there are two very competing interests occurring at the very same time. And I suspect it's creating a lot of conflict in clinicians' minds. I don't think this is. However, I'm concerned about the seriousness. And so I suspect the seriousness, when you go, I'm going to give somebody in the elderly a three-day course of antibiotics, here's a bit you have to be clear about. You have to be able to say on day three, is this the sort of person who actually can contact health services again Do they understand the instructions? And is it going to be clear to them if they're not cured or not feeling better, they will represent to their doctor? Because it always concerns me that if I give someone in, they stop it on day three, they're not quite better, and they then go off. And I think this is about availability of what we call safety netting in primary care. The ability to say if it's getting worse or it's not cured, here's how you go about contacting your clinician to represent present And so I think that's the problem here, not some just follow the guidance.
0: Um, It's interesting, Helen, there. You mentioned, you know, it's just in people's heads um, about the the length of course to give and this kind of worry that perhaps if you don't give enough antibiotics, then that will promote resistance. Now, we had an analysis published uh, a little while ago. Back in let me just check, uh twenty seventeen by Martin Llewellyn and all called the Antilles. Are you like Course. the
2: Wikipedia Are you the Wikipedia <laughs> of the BMJ somehow? You're just pulling out twenty seventeen papers.
0: Well, How are you an, doing it, that? Because <laughs> he podcasts everybody. Exactly. <laughs> it's like an, an encyclopedia. <laughs>
1: um,
0: <laughs> but what he was saying in that It's like
2: university <laughs> challenge here you're going.
0: <laughs> Maybe we could do that in the future. Um <laughs> What he was saying was that initial idea that, you know, if you don't give enough antibiotics, you'll promote resistance was way back with Alexander Fleming. And he actually said it in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech. And that just somehow entered our consciousness and, and stuck there ever since. But there's no actual evidence to, uh, to back that up. Anyway, I'll put a link to the podcast so people can go back and, and listen to him uh, explaining that in a better way than I can. Um, But yeah, so uh, that's a a point to leave that one on, I think. Helen, you had interest in another research paper that um, we've published, but this one is about troponin testing.
1: I know, a strange one for a GP to bring, hey? (laughs) Um, But I thought this was really fascinating from an evidence point of view. So this... um, this research paper seeks to tell us the true 99th centile of high sensitivity cardiac troponin in hospital patients Um, and there were several things that i thought were interesting here so to begin with when these tests um, these troponin tests were created and the manufacturers determined what the sort of normal range is and decided what the 99th centile is where you would then say to somebody this level is too high. Those levels were derived in healthy people so the the piece explains that 300 healthy men and 300 healthy women you get them you see what their troponin levels are and that's how that's how you decide. So this study does totally the opposite. It looks at all patients who were admitted to one um, hospital in Southampton in the UK over the course of a year. So 20,000 patients. And all of these patients have their troponin levels done. It doesn't form part of their routine care. And they just determine what the cutoffs are. So the manufacturer says the cutoffs is 40 nanograms per litre but they determined that the 99th centile for the whole population was 296. (laughs) So what that means is that in that hospital, about one in 20 patients had a troponin level that was above the recommended level. And then when you start to look at some of the other data that they've got about what the levels are like in people of different ages and in different genders and with poorer renal function, What you start to see is that in the kind of patients you might order these tests in, so people particularly over 65 who maybe have a slightly reduced EGFR and particularly maybe a male. Males seem to have higher troponins. It's really easy to see how you end up with um, significant, I suppose you would label them, troponin results. So basically, what the authors conclude is that using the manufacturer upper limit of normal as a ruling test for MI is not a good decision in patients who have atypical symptoms or other comorbidities. So they don't sound like they've got cardiac chest pain. And I guess the other thing that it really calls for is for guideline makers to perhaps look at this evidence and to consider whether new limits need to be created for troponin or even different levels for men and for women and people of different ages.
2: Right. Okay. I think at some, this is a really interesting point and there are quite a few interesting points. The first thing is I like to say, I like the acronym on this study, the Chariot study. We should have an award each year for the best. The Chariot study, the best <laughs> acronym. But um, the first thing is, this is the problem I have with our language. So we call it the sensitivity of the test. But when I talk about the sensitivity of the test, it's about the proportion of people with the disease who test positive. But in this case, mm-hmm. it means the test is becoming more sensitive. And we use the same term ambiguously all the time. And I wish we'd have a language that made sense to me at least, because I get easily confused when we're interchanging these terms. But what we're saying is this test picks up more troponin at a lower and lower level. Is that what it that's what it's saying. That's what we mean by a sensitive troponin test.
1: Well, I think that's been the the evolution of troponin, hasn't it? To pick up, as you say, yeah.
2: And in doing that, and lower and lower levels. And in doing that, you pick up more and more people who may not have had a heart attack. Yeah. And you run into problems if you just blanket test people. Yes. And don't think about what you're doing.
1: I think that's a good rule for clinical medicine, yes.
2: I'm calling that. (laughs) This is the campaign for reinvigorating clinical reasoning. Uh Instead of blanket testing people, where you get into all sorts of trouble because you keep getting spurious results, false positive results, you should be thinking about why you're doing the test and what difference it makes if you get a positive or negative result. And I think this is an issue in hospitals largely, is that the availability of the test means you do the test. And I guess this is showing you're in deep trouble. You're going to create a lot of work and a lot of issues with the increasing sensitivity of these tests.
1: But wouldn't this also create a problem, say, if you do have cardiac sound in chest pain and you are in one of those groups of people who tend to have a higher 99th centile? So if you get a result that's above 40, but below 296. Yes. Yeah, so doesn't that, that then create a dilemma? I mean, that seems, sort of seems to be reasonable testing.
2: But then that's coming back to the clinical reasoning aspect of what you're saying in a person with a higher pretest probability. What you have to understand is the implications of a neg- negative test in higher pretest test probability doesn't take it back to zero. And that's where the reasoning goes wrong for people is some people will still have a heart attack potentially even with the test result in this, what they're trying to say is normal range. So actually there are occasions in healthcare when you should pursue the clinical symptoms over and above the test results. That only reason not to do that is if when you've got perfect sensitivity and specificity and the vast majority of tests don't have that.
0: So this is uh, another one perhaps for uh, a later rant about screening that I think we're were planning to to have come up. But I think the interesting thing you were saying there, Carl, about um, the language around it uh, nicely segues into our next item. Because um, when I was learning about significance at university and, you know, what a p-value was, I don't think I in any way differentiated between statistical significance and actual real world, this makes a difference, significance, and I think that's uh, something that uh, a lot of people have been ranting about for a while. I mean, I, I've listened to uh, David Calhoun talk about this, um, and there was uh, an article, another article in the BMJ um, uh, about uh, p-values. So, um, Carl, shall I hand over to you for for another rant?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure if this is my rant, but I suspect anything I now say, there'll be statisticians on the phone tweeting (laughs) and emailing saying you've got it wrong.
1: Well, be very accurate. Think Uh, carefully. So
2: I have to think carefully, but I'm not. I think this is the whole problem again. For 70 years, this has been a significant problem. And I'm already using the word significant. I'll think of it a big problem. Let's go easy words. So, look, it, the writing in Nature have called for the concept of statistical significance to be abandoned A moved back by the American Statistical Association. And about 800 people have signed this letter. Now, there are a few things we have to get the terminology right before I go on. Uh, null hypothesis. There is no difference between these two treatments or these two events. P-value is a number between 0 and 1, and whatever I say now next will be wrong. But a small p-value, typically what they say is less than 0.05, indicates strong evidence against the null hypothesis. So when people say it's the chance that it would have occurred by chance, that's when statisticians go into a rant. It's about the null hypothesis.
1: So how do you say that in plain English? Then? There
2: is no way of saying it in plain English. That's why for 70 years we're in trouble. Here's what I I The P value is the probability when the null hypothesis is true there is no difference. The measure would be equal to or more extreme to the observed result. How's that for a mouthful? So you have <laughs> difficulty. That's pretty bad. Yeah, you have to think the the major thing is this idea that there's strong evidence against the null hypothesis, which is there's strong evidence against there's no difference. Now, uh, please ring in, have a rant, let's carry on. <laughs> but look, um, the bit here is, um, is, within all of this, is the bit that goes on, this is a, when was the last time you heard a seminar speaker claim? This is what they say in Nature. There was no difference between two groups because the difference was statistically non-significant. So that's what this is. This, this difference of what happened here is people put this artificial line in the sand of 0.05. Uh, below that, you're statistically significant, and above that, you're not significant. It's a useful rule of thumb, but what, what, what they're all ranting about, I think, and is that actually when you then draw a conclusion and say there's no association or there's no evidence of effect, when the p-value might be 0.10, and actually that's part of the problem.
1: So the problem is when you start to say there is not an effect.
2: Yeah. When you say there's no association and no effect because it was statistically not significant. And I totally agree with that. Yeah. But we've come into a world, if you think about the evolution of evidence-based medicine in the last 20 years, we've started to sort of dichotomize everything. There's Mm -hmm. statistically significant, not significant. There's high quality evidence, there's low quality evidence. And we've created these. And I'm a fan of getting rid of all of them and people coming back and starting to think about what does this actually mean? And I think that's what they're saying. Is it that actually this may be a really important result, but actually we were underpowered so we didn't have enough people and actually mm-hmm. if we did a bigger trial we might have found a significant result. You mm-hmm. should reel back from statistically significant, and we've had this discussion before, is to say, is this an important difference? Is this the sort of difference we would like to use in practice, and if we knew the true result, we would use it. And I think these nuanced ways of looking at evidence are far better than somebody saying, as I, as you've said, is it's not significant, therefore there's no association or no effect. That is the problem, and I'm looking for you as a research editor to ensure this never happens again in the BMJ. <laughs> And if it does, I'll be on the phone with 800 statisticians. I was quite
1: interested in the piece. So this actually came from from nature, didn't it? And I chuckled out loud when I read this part. It said that the papers set out how researchers should use statistics in their work with an emphasis on accepting uncertainty, being thoughtful, open and modest. And that made me chuckle out loud because I do think that a lot of the work that we do at the journal is often trying to encourage researchers often to be more open to different (laughs) interpretations of their statistics, more cautious or modest in their conclusions and far more accepting of a larger degree of uncertainty. And I appreciate that that may be because they're submitting to a system where they have to try and produce certain sounding messages to to try and encourage um, journal editors like myself to accept their work. But, but I do think there is, there is a problem in general, as you say, Carl, in, in trying to be a bit more thoughtful and open and modest and discursive about results rather than trying to say that something is worthwhile or it's not worthwhile based only on one piece of information.
2: Yeah, and I think we've, we've tried to come to the pursuit of truth, the exact perfect randomised trial, the exact perfect evidence, and none of that is, I think, a plausible way forward. In fact, what we're in the game of is reducing uncertainty. Yeah, And I think as an editor and people doing research, this idea that you more understand is this so- the sort of effect that might impact on practice. Might say you actually may use this treatment with evidence where the uncertainty is a bit greater, and actually you wait for the evidence to evolve, which might change future directions about whether you use the treatment or not. But there's also another point I wanted to make, which you mentioned David Colquhoun, who David Colquhoun was at EBM Live last year and spoke about this concept of the false positive risk. Um, And it is very interesting. But again, like all statistical issues, it seems to be statisticians talking to statisticians. And the question is, how do you then get that into a thought process where clinicians, researchers and the public start to understand this concept of, False positive risk. Are
1: you going to explain it then?
2: Well, what he means is trying to put a sort of percentage on what are the chances of this actually being uh, a false positive. Okay. So actually, you got a positive ro- result, but actually the null hypothesis, there's no difference, is true. And he gives an example in this paper where it says the p-value yeah, is 0- 0.05. But actually what he says is there's a 30% chance that actually, based on this intervention, the false positive risk, that actually this effect is is a false positive, the null hypothesis is true, there is no difference. And that's a very different way of looking at it, and it brings together what we call Bayesian reasoning. Now, if you can get David Colquhoun on the line, and in two minutes that him to explain this, it would help me, but I think it's an interesting concept, but with some way off thinking about how it could be brought into the mainstream. Duncan, if you could get David Colquhoun on the phone and ask him about false positive risks, that would be helpful. But make sure he only gives you two minutes because it could take a long time. I'm David Colquhoun. I was, uh, work, worked most of
4: my life at UCL, mainly on the stochastic properties of single molecules. But in retirement, I've gone back to some uh, statistical inference interests which i had right at the beginning of my job and uh, it, it keeps me off the streets <laughs>
0: um and as carl said uh, at evidence live um you did uh, talk very eloquently about you know why you think p-values are wrong and as he said as well um you introduced this idea of let's flip this and start talking about the potential that any result is a false positive um could you explain, you know, what what you're thinking now?
4: Well, this gets us into the realm of Bayes' theorem, <laughs> and that that can be a contentious area. There are particular circumstances where what I said is not true, but there's very widespread agreement among statisticians now that p-values, as commonly misinterpreted, do exaggerate the strength of the evidence against the null hypothesis. One way of looking at that is is the likelihood ratio, that your data would only be three times more likely to observe if, if there was an effect than if there was none. So uh, odds of 3 to 1 are not very good compared with the 19 to 1, which you might mistakenly infer from the p-value. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. The,
4: the trouble is, how can I put this best? Technically, it's known as a problem of the transposed conditional, <laughs> which sounds a bit uh, daunting, but it's, it's very easy to, uh, to understand, actually. Um, the probability that you, if you have four legs, given that you're a cow, is very high because there aren't many three-legged cows around. But the probability that you're a cow, given that you have four legs, is quite low because many animals have four legs. Well, there's an analogy between that and testing significance because the probability that your observations the probability of making your observations given the null hypothesis is true is the p-value. Your observations are more extreme ones but but that's not what you want. what you want is the probability that the null hypothesis this is true given your observations you need to reverse the um the condition in which the probability is is calculated and that is the province of Bayes' theorem which is not as daunting as it sounds i think in my video i try to explain it as as clearly as i can
0: well that's great and we'll put a link to your video um so that everyone can uh can go watch that and understand uh, a little bit more um so we started off this talking about uh false positives um false positive risk um kind of elaborate on that a little bit more
4: uh, a lot of people still think that's what the p value tells you, but it doesn't if you you ask most people what a p value tells you, they'll say it's the probability that your results are due to chance, and that's simply just wrong. The difference is. Actually, in the denominator of the probability, if you always reject uh, the null hypothesis from p equals 0.05, then you, uh, in the long run, reject it wrongly in 5% of the cases. But the denominator of that is the total number of tests in which the null hypothesis was true, because that probability is calculated on the premise that the null hypothesis is true. Now what the denominator should be is the number of total number of positive tests because we're talking about the case where you claim an effect the test came out positive so then the number of the false positive risk is the number of tests in which the null hypothesis is actually true divided by the total number of positive tests. That's a quite different probability and it's on most assumptions it's a good deal higher. So uh, it comes out for p-values close to 0.05 that there's a, at least a 20 to 30% risk that you make a fool of yourself by claiming an effect when there's none. Exist Not a 5% risk. And that that's quite a serious difference. And furthermore, if the hypothesis which you're testing is an implausible one, uh, say there's only a 1 in 10 chance before the experiment that it's true and that's not unrealistic in in things like screening a series of drugs for example, Mm -hmm. then if you see a p-value just below 0.05, your risk of being wrong if you claim a real effect on that basis is about is over 70 percent so it's really not surprising that the the uh, literature is full of false positives
0: (laughs) i've got a fundamental question about this which i've never really understood is where that 0.05 comes from you know why is that the the threshold
2: well everything I now say is likely to be untrue so you people out there check it but I think it was a sort of rule of thumb when Fisher developed what they call the exact test the the sort of significance testing and I think there is a value to rules of thumb when you put in put in sort of ideas and new techniques out there. You've got to say to some people, well, we think this is the point at which you may want to think the null hypothesis is is likely to be down to chance or not. And we use this all the time in medicine. Think of things like blood pressure. We stick a line in the sand at 140 millimetres of mercury systolic and say above that you're hypertensive and below that you are not hypertensive. And many people would say that's complete nonsense. It's a continuum. And in continuums you have to think differently and people just try and stick a line in the sand where they say below this it's good and above that it's bad. And what people are trying to say is it's a useful rule of thumb but it doesn't mean oh, once you're at po.06 or your blood pressure is 139, you're still not at risk. And I think that's where we get into problems. So I'm a big fan of using these rules of thumb but then almost ditching them.
1: And I think here it's tricky as well because... I suppose the number, the kind of 0.05, becomes a bit lazy. And then then having the phrase significant, I think adds to the laziness of it all and the lack of discussion. So there's not much...
2: Yeah, that's an interesting point, because then you get this concept of what people call p-hacking. They go looking for a result that gives you significance, don't they? So in doing that, you might have multiple outcomes, and you only select the outcomes which are below 0.05. We've even done work that shows people switch outcomes. They say this was the primary outcome, but they make it the secondary, make the secondary the primary because of this P-hacking phenomenon where they're looking for the 0.05, you know, the magic under the the gold on the rainbow, all of that. We've hit that. I'm going to send it to Helen McDonald, research editor. She's going to be convinced. It's going to get in the BMJ. We've made our career. And that's what happens here. And I think... This is not going to go away because I think this is an EBM sort of 2.0 where we're starting to sort of evolve our thinking a little bit about particularly now that many effects are actually very small in terms of their clinical significance. So when you have small effects, they can be important, but you really need to start to think about, is this sort of the result I can trust? Uh, is it free from bias? Does it actually make a difference? And all these things are not clear in terms of how we currently develop evidence great well so actually there is a point though helen your research editor you're going to be looking at this then what if i'm submitting or if people out there are submitting papers to the bmj and maybe this is something we have to return to because what should we be doing in terms of the papers now because it's a bit confusing to me
1: yeah, I think it's a good point. It's it's often the kind of thing we get our statisticians and the research editors together every so often and, and talk about things. So it'd be a very interesting thing to put on the agenda for that conversation to talk about, does this mean we should alter how we encourage our authors to report their results? And I think it's interesting as well for those people that, that run the reporting guidelines and other instructions for researchers on how to write things up i don't think it's a new piece of information necessarily but it's a, a good thing to revisit
0: definitely well there's some homework for you next time we can come back and tell people uh how that conversation's gone well, as carl or, or said happening. research
1: goes very slowly so it'll, be, <laughs> <laughs> it'll probably be at christmas that we discuss it next <laughs> okay
0: it's up to our listeners then to remind us at Christmas to come back and uh, uh, tell you what we're doing. I
1: will, I, I will attempt is. to get an answer before. My we... God,
2: you're wishing away my year already. Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> get your submissions in for the Christmas edition now. <laughs> Statistical <laughs> significance will win.
0: You joke, but it's not actually that far away. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um. Great, well... That was a good roundup I think um, as always we really want to hear from you about uh, anything we've talked about. So please tell us how wrong Carl was about his explanation of uh, p-values and uh, uh, and where this, the significance came from. Uh, we'll put all the links to everything we've talked about in the uh, podcast text so you can go off and uh, check that at your leisure and whilst you're there, if you haven't done so already uh, subscribe. Um, you know where you get your podcast from. We should be available there. So, yeah, subscribe, share us, uh, tweet us. We're on Facebook. You know, get into contact in any way. We'll be back again next month with more from the world of evidence. So, uh, until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.
1: Goodbye. Goodbye for <laughs>
0: <to> me. <laughs>